everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Comedy Podcast, where we talk comedy, we talk uh, behind the scenes of comedy, and we talk a little bit about charity. I'm uh, super excited for today's uh, guest. Uh, absolutely very, very funny. Um, I've worked with this uh, gentleman several times and so, so funny. Uh, Stand-up comedian and uh, late-night TV uh, writer for the Conan O'Brien Show. Uh, please welcome the very funny, the one, the only, Mr. Brian Kiley. Brian, how are you today? How are you, buddy? Good to see you. Doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time uh, and sure, coming on sure. today. How's uh, first and foremost? How's everything going on with the with the COVID? How's that all happening for you? You doing okay? Uh, yes. You know, my daughter actually had it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, she did. But uh, she tested positive about a month ago, and then uh, about a week ago, she tested negative. So, wow, that's yeah, that's amazing. So that's uh, wow. I, you're, I think you're the first person I know that uh, had somebody directly. Well, she came home from college, you know, she, at her college, some kids uh, were going to school in Italy mm -hmm. and then they were sent home and they weren't supposed to go on campus. And of course they went on campus. So my daughter and <laughs> all of her roommates and her friend group, they all got it. And we didn't know until she flew home and then she went and got tested. You know, we didn't know. And then she went and got tested. And it was like, oh, she's, she has it. So, so she never had a bad, she never had a high fever, but she just, she would sleep 12 hours a day and be achy mm. and, and shortness of breath and all that stuff. So it was a little stressful, but, uh, but she tested negative last week. So. Oh, that's great good. to hear. I'm glad that she's uh, she's doing better. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's um, let's get into a little bit about comedy uh, again. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. Um, we did a show uh, about two years ago. It's a, a fun story, and I'm really excited to have you here because uh, you went up and absolutely murdered for 45 minutes, and it made me hate my act so bad. <laughs> uh, that because, was that was my that was the plan. Yes, exactly. Well, you you, you <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> and to this day, I still do shows in that uh, that event, that area, and they still just talk about you and how amazing you were. And they're like, we need to get him back. We need to get him back. So hopefully, oh, well, thanks. yeah, hopefully when this all blows over and we can be in front of people again, then uh, we'd love to, to have you come back out and, and do that. But Well, you left out. It was like a, it was a wine show, right? Yes. So th that wine might have helped. <laughs> Alcohol <laughs> tends to help a little bit, but uh, no, it was... It was such a, a great show, but it, it made me just realize because you have a, a very different style. I'm uh, much more of a higher energy kind of, you know, spastic and storytelling, and you are, are just, you know, set up punchline. And um, the the command that you have from that stage is doing that just made me go, man, I wish I could I could write like that. And it's been a goal of mine to write like five minutes of material like that, and I still haven't done it. So <laughs> <laughs> hasn't been, I guess, that big of a goal. So. Uh, uh, but I, I absolutely love having you in. So let's start uh, a little bit. What what inspired you to get into stand up? You know, I I have to say, I think I really, I think I really was always a comedy nerd. You know, I, mm -hmm. I and I think for me, the highlight of my day was if I got a big laugh in the classroom, or you know that kind of thing. You know, that's that was that would kind of make my day yeah <laughs> so i think um i think I, I i i just think i always loved comedy i always loved getting laughs i i love the you know i i i got in trouble when i was in the fourth grade because i took a, a joke book out of the library and i didn't return it <laughs> <laughs> and it's just funny looking back now where it's like i i'm you know i i wanted to memorize those jokes you know and um i think just I, I never i you know it's hard to know if you can be a comedian as a kid before when i was a kid uh, we didn't have there weren't comedy clubs so as much as i wanted to be a comedian i didn't know how people went about that you know right did um was there so you said there were no real comics to like really inspire you? Were, were there comics? Was I mean, because I know Carlin was kind of doing some stuff. Uh... Yes, I do remember listening to him. You know, there were albums that you'd listen to. Okay. So I do remember it's the classic thing of behind closed doors. You know, you're, I'm at my friend's house. He's mm -hmm. got the album, and it was a secret thing, and we're listening to George Carlin's Seven Dirty Words. Right. And I remember him 
finishing taking the album and then hiding it behind his dresser. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I would listen to Bob Newhart albums and Bill Cosby albums and Woody Allen albums and things, and Rodney Dangerfield. Um, I always get in trouble with these things because I never mention any female comics, but there were there was so few in those days, mm. you know? And, um, you know, there's a million great female comics now that just weren't then, you know? Um, and, and the people Joan Rivers was talking about, I didn't know who, I didn't know the celebrities she was talking about when I was 12 years old or whatever, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I think a lot of the like female comedy back then was kind of, uh, like Goldie Hawn on laughing and like, that was more of the, as opposed yeah. to stand up. Right. Right. That's true. So what was the, do you remember your first show? I do. I do. Um, I had taken a class uh, in the summer. Um, what had happened was I had met, I was going to college. Uh, there was a comedy show at my college and I met one of the comedians. I th this guy, Barry Crimmins, I thought he was great. So I went up to him afterwards and I had been writing jokes for years. So I had all these jokes that I had been writing since I was, you know, here I was 19 or something, but I've been writing jokes for six years or something. So I said, I want to be a comedy writer. And he was running a club called the Ding Ho in Cambridge, Mass. So I had a cup of coffee with him and I brought my jokes and he kind of critiqued them and whatever. And he was basically saying, you, you can't make any money in Boston writing comedy. You have to go on stage, perform. And I was like, oh, I couldn't. So that summer I took a, a comedy class at Emerson College uh, taught by Dennis Leary. Wow. Uh, and they had us do stand up, and then the last class it really it went well, so they encouraged me to keep going. So I went to the open mic at the Ding Ho, and coincidentally, my friend Barry Kermans was the host, so he gave me a great spot and a great intro, and and really I had a my first set was really, really great. Oh, that's awesome! I was going to ask you about that uh, if you were around for the Ding Ho days because that's such a a legendary club, um, especially in Boston, but even just throughout comedy. I mean, all the all the legends were there, you know, Jay Leno and, sure. uh, you know, Bobcat went through there from, from time to time. Sure. It's Stephen Wright. Yeah. Stephen Wright. Yeah. Yeah. Paula Poundstone. Yeah. Yeah. Love Paula. Paula is, uh, I, I think very underrated as a comedian. I think she probably does the best crowd work of any uh, comic I, I've ever seen. I, she's absolutely as good as any comic working today. You know, she's, her crowd work is unbelievable. She also works her material in with it seamlessly um it's it seems effortless you know it's really incredible yeah so if people have no idea who paula poundstone is definitely yeah. look her up because she's absolutely amazing she is absolutely so um what was the the best advice you received about doing stand-up comedy would you say you know it's funny i i think i think i probably have multiple answers to to that i think um, one of the things, you know, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan and he, oh, by the way, this is my son's bedroom that I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't my bedroom. Um, <laughs> you're wanting anime and little league trophies and so on. <laughs> Not mine. Um, <laughs> you're but, killing it against the, uh, the eight year olds. In the <laughs> <laughs> this guy's still in little league here. Um, so his his saying that to really master something you have to put your ten thousand hours in, and I think that really is great advice because so many people start out and they want to be they want to be famous or successful right away and it just doesn't work like that and you know I I work with Laurie Kilmartin who's a fantastic comic and she always tells people do it every night for ten years and then you'll be good at it. And nobody wants to hear that, but she's right. That's, that's really the only way. So, um, uh, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of good advice over the years about, um, you know, what I think, I think getting the advice of, you know, you talked about being a storyteller. I would love to be a storyteller. <laughs> you know, I really would. I, I see comics that they go up and they tell long, funny stories and it's a 10 minute bit and whatever. 
I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you, know, you know, so I've had to learn early on. It's like, oh, this is what you do. You write jokes and that's your thing. So, you know, uh, it makes it hard if I have to do, if I have to do 45 minutes, that's 135 jokes. <laughs> that's a lot of jokes. That's and, a lot. And sometimes they go, oh, can you do an extra 10? Oh, sure. I've got another 40 <laughs> jokes lying around that I had nothing to do. You know, whereas if you just have another story to throw into, <laughs> right. you know, so, um, but I think that you have to, uh, you know, finding out what your strength is. And, you know, I actually had, I got some advice from Bill Maher of all people who I know he wouldn't remember me. I worked with him a million years ago and he said something that was, I was very insulted at the time. <laughs> But in hindsight, I realized that he was right in that I had a, my last jokes would really do well. So I'd do 20 minutes and I'd do okay for 15 minutes. So then the last five minutes would be strong. And he said, oh, you know, he said something like, if you make, if you can make the first the first half of your act as strong as the last half of your act, you really have something. Mm -hmm. And I was insulted at the time. Right. But in retrospect, he was right in that it's got to all be strong, you know, and otherwise you're just wasting our time. So, you know, I see somebody where they'll have an unfunny bit and I'll see them do it for years. <laughs> you know, it's like, look, I, I don't blame you trying something out or you're working on something and it doesn't quite gel and you get, but years later, <laughs> you know, so I think, um, I, I think him saying that he was right. But, but by the same token, if, if, if you've got, if you, if you can write five funny minutes, then you can write 10 funny minutes. And you can then you can write twenty funny minutes if you know if you see what I'm saying. If you mm -hmm. can't write five funny minutes, then I, I can't help you, you know. Right. But if you, but if you can do that, there's no reason you can't duplicate that hmm. again and again. Yeah, you you touched on a few uh, different things that I, I want to kind of hit on in that that answer. Um, but just within uh, you you talk about you were always kind of a, a joke writer, a one liner writer, and and not necessarily a story writer. Um, and for people who, who say, you know, oh, I'm a, there, there's that other end of it where people say I'm a storyteller, but they have no jokes and they have no punchlines and they have no, and it just goes on for five minutes and then you get a punchline. Um, I always send them to, uh, Larry Miller, uh, the right. secret of skiing, which is a 35 minute bit about skiing. And there is wow. a punchline every 10 seconds. Like, it's, yes, it's brilliant. And so anyone who's like, Amazing. oh, I'm a storyteller. I go, Hey, watch that. And that's yeah. Absolutely. There have, there have to be laughs within the story, um, not just at the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're yeah. not going to stay with you to the end. No, um, no. And, and, and also storytellers would have trouble getting on television with that kind of act because even if it's a big payoff, a television audience isn't going to wade through four minutes of setup. Mm. To, you know, where a, a comedy club, they did pay and they'll come and sit. They hopefully want to hear what you have to say. TV, they're just going to change the channel. Right. So even if it's the funniest payoff that you've ever heard, there has to be laughs building to it. Right. Um, now you talked about having, what was it 135, 45 jokes? 135 and uh, 45 minutes. Yeah. My gosh. How, uh, and I know people always ask me this, how do you remember your jokes? At least mine kind of flow and it's structured yeah. and I go, okay, I have the, the fat chunk. I have the facial paralysis chunk. I have the impression chunk. How on earth, because a lot of your stuff is uh, based on, you know, your wife and your relationship yeah, sure, and then sure. there are other things. How do you remember all of those? And do you have a segue to them or? I try to clump them together. I'll try to do, okay, here are my wife jokes. Here are my kid jokes. Here are my jokes about when I was a kid or whatever. So I do try to clump them together. I do think when you're doing shows all the time, then it's just in your head. I think the, I, you do get in trouble <laughs> if you haven't been on stage for a while. But, you know, when this quarantine ends, I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I also think it's 
I re record all my sets on my phone and I listen to them on the way to the gig. And hmm. sometimes if I, especially if I'm doing 45 minutes, I'll write out my set before, you know, in the afternoon beforehand, if I can, I'll listen multiple times to it on the drive so that it's really, especially the, the new bit you want to play over and over to go, okay, how does this go again? And whatever, you know, I will practice a new bit in the car. It's funny because I think in the old days, before cell phones, if you're, I'm sure people looked over and saw me just talking to myself in my mm -hmm. car and thought oh, this guy's a kook. Now people just assume I'm on the phone when I'm not. I'm just talking to my. I'm still <laughs> talking to myself. That's funny. Uh, does does that ever mess you up when you have multiple shows, some like two, three shows in a night, and you get that feeling of did I already tell this? Yes, it's a terrifying <laughs> feeling of did I already say this joke? I do think. I really have to keep things in the same order mm -hmm. because if you start messing with the order when you're doing multiple shows, then you really don't know what the next thing is. And th there is that terrifying feeling when you start a joke of, did I say this joke already? Mm -hmm. And when they laugh and you go, whoo, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's an awful feeling. Um, how long would you say it clicked uh, or how long did it take for you uh, starting out before things kind of clicked? A lot of new comics always ask, and how often were you getting on stage before you felt like it, it kind of clicked? Well, you know, when I was in college, I was just doing it, say, once a week. And then, and then uh, once in a while, they would throw me a bone and have me come in on a Saturday and do five minutes or something like that. Okay. Um, I think that's a tricky question because I think you think you think it clicked much earlier, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. You go, oh, it, things are really clicking. And, and then looking back, you go, oh, they weren't. You <laughs> right. just had a couple of good shows in a row where you had a good little streak there or something. But um, and then when you think it's clicking, then you suddenly be like, oh, my shows have been the <laughs> You know, in picture, you've, you're, you feel like you've got good stuff. And then sometimes you're like, oh, I don't, my, I've been a little off lately or whatever, you know? So, it's be careful about saying when things are clicking because you're asking for things to stop <laughs> clicking. Um, but um, uh, I, I don't know, I guess. I'm, I, 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 mm. um, I, I think when, when I learned that I, when I learned that I could follow people that I'm like, Oh boy, that's whatever. I think, I think what can happen is, when you it's it's more you know you've you've arrived when you have a really tough crowd or a tough situation and you do well as opposed to just killing with an easy crowd anyone can kill with an easy crowd mm -hmm. that that's not the test when you've got to do 45 minutes the middle killed they're tired it's 11:30 and you still do well you know, you, when you do well against their will, <laughs> right? Yeah. Then, then uh, you've accomplished something. That's a good answer. I like that. That's uh, pretty accurate. Um, now you started off in uh, Boston, uh, mm -hmm. which I also did. So I, I never get to talk about Boston comedy uh, too much. So I'm, I'm going to take this chance to to do that. Um, tell us uh, a little bit. You you had left by the time I had started. Mm -hmm. And I always just heard about Brian Kiley, Brian Kiley, Brian Kiley. And I was just like, <laughs> who's this Brian Kiley guy? The place that I started was a place called the Comedy Palace in North Andover. And uh, they actually had your picture on the menu. Uh, not just you. They had other comics. But they had your headshot on there. Uh, on there and oh, the I owner just. That. That's yeah. He always, he just always talked about how much, you know, oh, Brian Kiley was amazing. Brian Kiley, I wish he was still here and all that. So. Um, oh, that's nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it, it was uh, really cool. So it was very, uh, it was very cool to get to meet you finally. Tell us a little bit about uh, starting off in Boston and what that scene was like for you. You know, it's funny. Some of the things I, I didn't realize. I mean, I, I, I always thought the the headlining comics that I started with were great. There was no, there was no. I was, I thought they were amazing. I was blown away by them and the fact that they sort of that these guys would kind of take me under their wing or whatever was really helpful to me. I, 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 when you go to other cities and you realize, Oh, 
these comics here aren't that good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I didn't, you know, when it wasn't, I mean, I always thought they were great, but it really, when I went out and saw other places, I realized how lucky I was to just to learn from these guys. You know, what was so great back then was there was such originality and that everyone had a, just a different character, so to I have to say, or, and persona and style. And it, it, there were so many, all these headliners were so unique and that mm. was what they, I think, I, I think it, you know, certain cities, they all act like somebody gets famous and they all act like that person or whatever, you know, to try to go, oh, right. that's the way to do it. It's like, now it's, it's actually, if you're not being yourself, you're just not going to go far, you know? So I think that, that the originality and um, the fact that we had, the, the crowds were not always easy. Um, you had to be, hit them fast and quick and so on. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first went out to San Francisco, I would do 25 minutes of material and it would take 35 minutes because I had to slow everything down. <laughs> Where in Boston, you have to go 100 miles an hour. Right. You know? So um, I, I think just getting to learning so much from watching these guys, even things I didn't realize I was learning um really helped me um it was just like having great batting coaches if you're playing baseball or whatever you know yeah it's it's uh, i always talk about it and i just the headliners are all just monsters just absolute monsters and so you really had to earn your way up that ladder uh, yeah, and, that's and true. There, there was such a, a history of comedy in boston that the crowds and the clubs demanded excellence and so it wasn't you couldn't just go up and you know phone it in you had you know uh don gavin and steve sweeney and lenny clark and kevin knox and all these these monsters that um and they were very generous frank santorelli all these people would just take you in under their wing and just kind of like teach you a little bit and then you just watch these masters work every night and you just go wow this is this is amazing to to learn and then you move to a different city, like you said, and you go, oh, this is completely different. <laughs> well, I also think some some sort of road hacks would come into Boston and, you know, they might kill as they go across the country, but you would see it wouldn't work. It's like, no, this is your yeah. act is so generic and so whatever that you'd see those guys fail all the time. Um, so, I, I, you know, just le that learning that being original and being creative and working at your craft. Uh, that's, I think I learned so much from watching those guys. Mm. I've heard uh, a couple stories. I think it was maybe Joe Rogan said that uh, when like a national act would come in, they would get uh, a Boston headliner to feature and just go in and just rip right in front of them. And <laughs> I never understood why they did that because they're paying all this money to get somebody, sometimes someone kind of famous or famous yeah. to come in and then they would put Don Gavin or Steve Sweeney in front of them and they would kill and this guy would go down in flames. And it was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and they it would happen every time. It's like, what, what, you know, why bother paying for that guy to come in and bomb, you know? Yeah. Unless you're just doing that for your own satisfaction of watching the comic yeah. eat it, I guess. I guess. But it was like, you're spending a lot of money to bring in someone here who's not going to do well who can't follow these guys. They're too strong. Why are you doing that? I never understood that. Now you, um, uh, after Boston, did you go to New York right away or did you go to, uh, well, I, I went to New York with Conan when I okay. got the Conan job. Um, and that, even that was a little bit, I went back and forth for a while, but, um, yeah, I did. Uh, I was in, I went to New York with Conan and then, um, and then I was there the whole, you know, and then when he mm -hmm. moved to L.A., then I came out here. How do you find, uh, and I, I know comedy's kind of changed anyway over the last 30 years, but how did you find the differences between uh, New York, L.A., Boston, that sort of? Well, New York was much more of, um, it was a lot more crowd work. The comics did a lot more crowd oh. work than in Boston. And, and 
to a large extent, crowd work was almost frowned upon mm -hmm. in Boston. Mm -hmm. It was more like build your act, have an act, go up and do your act. And um, in New York, I would see a lot of comics who did crowd work who were terrible at it. And I never, I didn't understand why, what are they, what are you doing? There was, there's, uh, there were a handful of people who were great at it. And then it was really a treat watching them, you know, Todd Barry's great at it. Larry Amorose is great at, it. you know, there's some people that Mike Sweeney is great at. So there were people that were great at it and they were a treat to watch them work a crowd. But I felt like 90% were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was kind of always, I was kind of mystified by that because they weren't building an act, you know? So, mm. and you know, where I started out, it was kind of like, Hey, build five strong minutes. And then after you got five strong minutes, build 10 strong minutes and build it up. So you're building an act. Um, it was sort of a different philosophy there. And then what, when I came out to LA, what I noticed was you'd have these unbelievable shows with some famous people and killer, and there's no one in the audience, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you go, this show is like the best show I've ever been on. And there's right. six people here, you know? So I guess there's just so many strong comics here and there's so much, there's so much for people to do. Like in, you know, other cities, there's just not that much to do, you know? Right. So, um, in LA, there's a million great shows going on all the time and they just can't all be filled, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's also a lot of entertainers and inspiring actors and comedians. Yeah. So it's, it's, you yeah. don't have a, a, a bigger base of normal people, so to speak. Yeah, yeah that's true. A lot of industry. Just, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how did you, uh, you talked a little bit about Conan. How did you end up um, getting into writing for Conan? So I used to do a lot of topical jokes. And, and I would get up every day and get the paper and write jokes and, and before the internet, because I'm a million years old. And um, so I would do, if I did 45 minutes in those days, 25 minutes were, were topical stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly writing jokes from the news. And the topical stuff, you can generate more of it. The problem is it has a short shelf life. Like if, if you have a great about going to your high school prom you can do it for 30 years you know you have a great bit about the 2020 election well you can only do it for th six months or something so um but i was writing a lot of topical jokes and i had a couple friends who got hired at conan my friend tom agna and chuck sklar and uh louis ck and uh, they somebody got fired and they say, hey, we're looking for somebody to write Conan's monologue. Um, why don't you submit? So I basically, I typed up like 50 jokes from my act. You know, I wrote some new stuff from the that day and the day before and that kind of thing. Um, and then I sent them in and um, they called me on a Monday afternoon and they said, uh, yeah, uh, you start tomorrow. <laughs> so I flew out the next day and I thought, the Conan show was very shaky then. I thought I would just do this for, um, you know, 13 weeks. I had 13-week contracts. Um, and I thought maybe I'll do it for 13 weeks or for 26 weeks. Um, and I've been there now more than 26 years. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it, it every day, and the, the show was very shaky in those days, and we'd be reading the paper, and there were constant rumors about Conan's going off the air, who's going to replace Conan, and so on. Hmm. So um, then you talk uh, a little bit about something I, I, I always find really interesting. There's multiple styles of, of comedy writing and I do want to get back. I am going to ask you about the worst show you've ever done, but, uh, but <laughs> since you, you brought we, this up, we can skip that, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the people really want to hear. I get a little uh, PTSD. Exactly. Uh, so I think, there's generally uh, two types of, of comedy writing. There's, or there's, there's comedians, I should say, who wait for something to happen or write about experiences that they, they see and an experience. So like, uh, like you said, you prom or, you know, you're going right. to the mall and this happened. And then there are, are comedy writers who, you know, you may go into to work and they say, okay, uh, five monkeys escaped from the zoo. Let's get some jokes. And, 
just kind of, if you can talk a little bit about that and maybe the process of how you deal with like a new topic uh, that you may not know going into the day. All right. So there's a few things. I do think it's, I think with certain comics, it's almost, there's almost sort of a, a, a fiction and a nonfiction comic sometimes. I think there are certain comics where they talk about, hey, you go to the supermarket and you pick up the thing and it says this on the ingredients and blah, blah, blah and you make fun. And everything they're saying really happened. It's a true thing. Mm -hmm. And they're living in the real world. And then there are comics, I think, that they went into the supermarket and they forgot to wear pants and they were naked and they robbed the place and but and none of it ha it's all just it's all a joke mm -hmm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. so the pro i think either thing is fine i think the thing that you can't do is mix them um you know i i remember seeing a comic do a bit about um you know aliens abducting his girlfriend and then a few minutes later, he was holding up headlines from the news and talking about how ridiculous such and such was. It's like, well, that is ridiculous. However, aliens abducted your girlfriend. I'd be more worried about that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. So you can have an act where aliens are abducting your girlfriend and, and you've got this surreal act and whatever, but then you can't transfer over into the real world. And, you know, and... Stephen Wright has created this world that with no boundaries and it's not bound by time or space or whatever, but then he can't turn around and go, huh, do you hear what Trump said today? It's like, right. you know, it doesn't, <laughs> right. it doesn't work like that, you know? And of course he knows that, but and he would never do that. But um, so I do think, and there's, there's nothing wrong with either st style. I mean, I think both styles are great. I think mm -hmm. that you have to, I remember, ironically now, I, I always feel embarrassed talking about Bill Cosby, but I remember him saying how much pride he took in that when he would do his show that everything he said was true. Now, for me, I won't say nothing I'd say is true I, because that I'll get, I feel like my setups are true mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the, for the most part. <laughs> there, your setups have to at least be plausible. And that my setups usually come from a real place. And, um, you know, if, if I say, you know, um, I can't think of any of the jokes in my act now, but, <laughs> but whatever the setup to my, you know, if, um, you, you, you went to, uh, the place, your childhood home. Yeah. So, you know, I went to my childhood home and, and I, I, um, you know, I, I said, I used to live here. Can I look around? And reluctantly, my parents let me in. <laughs> so there's a thing where I did go to visit my childhood home and look around, but it, my parents were still living there. Do you know right. what I mean? Right. So it, it, it has to come from a real place. And it's certainly, hopefully it's believable that I did that. Do you know, I what, what happens to me sometimes a comic will say something where the setup you know, the setup will be like, oh, you know, I, I was dating the supermodel and then blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you weren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, whatever the joke is, we're not on board because right. we know that never happened or whatever, you know? Yeah, you need that bit of um, believability. Yes. So in terms of writing monologue jokes, it's actually the same structure of here's the true statement and now here's the punchline. So... I'd been doing that for years, whether it was jokes for myself or jokes for the news. So it, it's the same thing is, you know, I couldn't get a date for the prom. So I went with one of the lunch ladies it is the same as, you know, President Trump met with the president of, of Yugoslavia or what is no Yugoslavia anymore, but met with the president of Greece today. And then here's the punchline. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's still the same structure. It's the true okay. statement followed by the punchline. Okay. So um, if if you can do one, there's no reason you can't do the other. <laughs> okay, that's the really, same thing. Yeah, that's really a, that's a really interesting way of, of uh, explaining that. That's I, I I really like that. That's pretty cool. So um, 
I, I guess. And I do think yeah. with people writing stuff, I'm sorry, like whatever they're writing, and and there's there's famous authors, you know, famous novelists that everything they write real it comes from their real life. You know, they're writing about their childhood or whatever, but they're not making anything up. They're not they're they're looking at the world and and taking the selectively taking the good the gold nuggets out and, and making them a story. They're not just saying I woke up today, I had some cereal, I went to read the paper, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like they're they're finding the key parts of their they're extracting the the gold from their life and presenting it, and it's all true. And then you have other writers where it's completely their imagination. And so, so I think I think uh, I think both are totally fine. And I think the same thing happens in comedy. Mm. Uh, but and if you're if you if you have a nonfiction view, don't write fiction and vice versa. That's really good advice. That's a really that's a really good advice. I um I I do want to get back to it. I I no I said we wouldn't. <laughs> but that, or, <laughs> everyone loves to know these. Uh, so what is probably what is what is one of the worst? What is the worst show you've ever done? You know, I, I wish, I mean, I wish I could say I don't have any of those stories. <laughs> and, I, and I wish I could say I had a really funny thing with, you know, I followed a clown who, they're always terrible. They're painful. I've had a million of them. Um, I, I think it's funny because my first show at the Ding Ho went so well. Mm -hmm. And then I went back the next week and Lenny Clark was the host. And I went on after midnight and... I think it was like 1230 or something I got on. So the show is, is like three and a half hours old. And I just ate it. And, and <laughs> especially when you're first bombing, like the first show went great. And you think, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I'm amazing. Or I'm, I've I'm, got this. You know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I've got. And then the second show was just such a debacle of. And someone I remember. I remember somebody laughing sarcastically. And that is the worst <laughs> you know it's it's really the worst and here i am i'm 20 years old and it was just humiliating you know oh. and i've had so many of those where sometimes you know and and here's the thing it's not always your fault you know people think a bad crowd is a crowd that's kind of quiet or something. It's like, no, no, no. A bad crowd is when you're fearing for your physical safety. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that people want to beat you up. You're in some kind of a bar where it's they're drunk. They they're you know they they want to harm you. Right. It's you know um, and you know yeah. I mean it's. And then sometimes you're doing a show where they would say, they would have a show at a restaurant and people would just come to the restaurant not knowing there's a comedy show. They don't want a comedy show. And they go, okay, go up there and impose comedy on people that don't want to be, <laughs> don't want to hear comedy. It, and, you know, you've got a couple where they're on a date. Maybe they're having an intimate conversation. No, no, you have to listen to me tell my dick jokes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or somebody at the table, somebody's going to tell somebody that they're, they're breaking up or they've got some terminal illness or whatever, <laughs> whatever their personal conversation is. No, you have to shut up and listen to me <laughs> because they sent me up. They didn't come for that. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like it, it's sometimes you're, you're imposing comedy on people that, you know, it's almost like at your home, minding your own business. Someone breaks into your house and goes, okay, now you have to listen to me sing. Well, I, I don't, why am I listening? Like I didn't right. pay for this. So, yeah, this. Um, I remember doing the show in Boston, and there were these three women in, up front, just they not not laughing at all, and then they would whisper to each other and whatever. <laughs> and I'm bewildered, and I the rest of the show was doing well, so I didn't want to mess with it, whatever. And I come off, and the club owner is like, "Oh, you know, I hope those three women from Germany didn't throw you off." It's like, <laughs> oh, no. you know. If people don't speak English or something, you have to let me know what's happening. You know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I did a show yeah. uh, similar to to that. Uh, it was in Lexington, and it was an Italian restaurant, 
and uh, they basically took away a table and then brought out a little makeshift stage. And the guy gets on the microphone and is like, okay, folks, you got to shut up now. Comedy show is about to start. And uh, here's the first guy. And <laughs> it, uh, yeah. it didn't go well. It didn't go no, well at all. No. <laughs> and one of my first sets at the, like when I first got like a Saturday at the Ding Ho, and here I'm, I'm in college and I'm doing five minutes. So I go up and I do my five minutes and it goes fine. And then I'm in the back next to the other comic and he has an epileptic fit. <laughs> and he collapses and epileptic fit and they have to, I have to call the ambulance and he comes <laughs> and they take, take in the ambulance and they take him away. And they said, okay, we're doing another show in the next room right now. You have to go on and take his place and you've got to do 20 minutes. I don't have 20 minutes. <laughs> and... I just saw, I just witnessed this horrific thing, you know, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, you just see this traumatic event and then, okay, get up there. It's like, what? So, yeah, I mean, um, those are great. It's, you know, there's and, so many, there's so many ways they can go wrong. <laughs> well, I remember working, doing my five minutes at, at the comedy connection and Kenny Rogerson was the host and he's mm -hmm. the funniest guy he's just unbelievable yep. but i end up going on last and there's five people in the audience or something so i go up and i do my five minutes and i come up and kenny goes back and goes, let's get him back up here <laughs> <laughs> so i've got to go back up so I, you know i've only have like seven minutes of my total of material in my life so i do my remaining two minutes and I come off, let's get him back up. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back on and I do whatever. I talk to the crowd a little, but I've got nothing. So a week later, I'm working with him and he goes, folks, this next guy, I worked with him last week. He got two encores. <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't. I got no encore. You, I got two fake encores yeah. from you. Uh, That's hysterical. Yeah. I, have, and I, had a, yeah, I did have a situation where I was in this terrible room and I was bombing. I've actually had two times where someone was heckling me and someone from the crowd went over and started beating them up. Wow. So two different times, <laughs> like, <laughs> there were fistfights in the crowd where I was on stage where someone was coming to my defense. <laughs> oh, that's, well, at least someone was coming to your defense and not yeah, going after yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> There's that famous clip of, uh, I believe it was in Boston, the guy who went on stage and the uh, comedian him with a guitar. Oh, uh, yeah, that wasn't in Boston. But, uh, oh, was it? Yes, okay. But, no, no, thank God. But that, yeah, that was <laughs> that was a, somewhere in the middle of the country. But that guy went to prison for like, <laughs> <laughs> well, if you haven't seen it, the guy's, he's got a guitar, he's being heckled, and the they get into it and the heckler charges the stage. And all you see, you see him swing the guitar and you hear the crack, and he comes back, and the guitar is broken. <laughs> and what I love is he tries to go back into his egg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the crowd's like, no, yep. you just assaulted that guy. And I, he went to, I think he went to prison for a few oh, months. Oh, wow. That's funny. Yeah, because yeah, he was like, that wasn't my fault, right? He's starting to like, no, <laughs> we don't like you at all. I just someone just goes, I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to take up too much uh, more of your time. Thank you. I know you're very busy. So a couple more questions. Um, I wish I were busy, but anyway, there's <laughs> uh, a quarantine. Well, and just with the Kenny Rogerson story, like that's such like a kind of a badge of honor that they, they either like you that much that they, they rib you to, to go up and throw you in that. Yeah. I mean, I think he's one of these guys that really took me under his wing and he was a little bit trying to get me to almost like as an actor when they're trying to stretch you as an actor, it yeah. was a little bit like, like, let him deal with this, you know? Yeah. Uh, I had it was the, so funny. Yeah. The first time I He's worked the funniest with guy. Patrice O'Neill, he was hosting um, the show and I never met him. And I uh, went up and I did my act and he was just like, he goes back up. He's like, Brian April. He goes, oh, that's funny. He's not normally that funny. Just like right <laughs> in front of the whole crowd. And I was like, okay, that's, that was my like, okay. That's little stamp really of funny. approval from Patrice. <laughs> um, so uh, we talk about the, uh, Writing for, for late night, what is a, cause most people I don't think have a, a clue. What is a typical day like for you uh, on set and writing? Okay. So uh, normally when we're at work, um, I go in, first thing is 
um, going looking at the news sites and writing down the premises of okay, what's happening in the news? Because he's Conan's monologue is going to be, and all, you know, the, all the hosts they're, they're doing it. They're talking about that day's news. So mm. going through and there is some story, you know, there's a said there's a plane crash and 200 people died. He's not going to talk about that story. Right. You know, it might be the biggest story in the news, but he's not going to address that in any way. So what can he talk about? What's, you know, if there's like, what's a fun story to talk about? Uh, you know, it's usually what the president's up to. If, you know, if the president visited a cancer ward, it's like, yeah, we're not going <laughs> to. Right. <laughs> we're not going to go there, you know, but if there's some, if it's the president's birthday, yeah, we're going to make a joke about the president's birthday or whatever, you know? So, so you kind of go through and go, okay, what are the areas? You know, there's a, oh, there's a sex study from France that says such and such. Okay. That's a good area for us. Or, you know, uh, marijuana was just legalized in this country. Let's, we'll do some jokes about that or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So finding the areas he'll talk about sort of collecting the premises. So it's just Laurie Kilmartin and me these days. So we'll both collect premises, share our premises together. We write our jokes. Uh, we submit them. Conan will, um, uh, we'll usually we'll meet and kind of go through the jokes and say, Maybe instead of saying this, we'll tweak this joke. Or how about sometimes someone has a joke that you makes triggers an additional joke that you come up with or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go over the jokes. We'll send them in. Conan reads them and gets back to us and says, you know, uh, more jokes on this, more jokes on the president's birthday or whatever. And we'll do that. And then we'll write another batch and send them in. And then we meet with them. And he's already picked the jokes he liked from the first batch. Then he looks at the second batch and goes through those. And sometimes it's like, oh, we had a joke here about the, the sex survey. And the first joke, first batch they liked, the second joke actually is better than the first one. And we, we can't do both. We'll do the second one. Or, um, uh, you know, so then we kind of collect the, He picks the ones that he likes from both batches. Um, those are going to go to cue cards. He might say, we never got a good joke on the president's birthday. So we might then have to go back and try to write a third batch on just that topic or something. Um, but usually after the second batch, pretty much the monologue is set at that point. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll throw a few Hail Marys over the wall towards the end. But usually that's usually we're not in trouble. <laughs> we're not in trouble. And we've got enough that he likes that are on cue cards that and then we'll meet at four o'clock with uh, our head writer and Andy, Andy Richter and our producer and Conan will read through the jokes and then um, they, you know, kind of get a consensus of what everybody likes. And, and sometimes even up to the last minute, there's a lot of, hey, you know what? You don't need the word uh, legal in there. Obviously, it's legal. Otherwise, you know, whatever. It's redundant. You know, take that out or whatever. So. There's still a lot of joke tweaking um, up to the last minute. That's the thing. The big difference between doing stand-up and writing for a show is if if you if you've got a new bit, you try it out. It's kind of funny, but it's not. Then you can say, "Oh, you know what? I don't need this part. I can." Do it. And then the next night, you take that that, and you, and then by the end of the week, you've you've tried it four different ways, and now you've got it. Mm -hmm. Here we have we've only got one shot at it, so it's got to be clear and 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 it's got to be just the the best way we we can come up with it on the first shot because we only get that one shot. Um, so that's the tricky part. The good thing is you do have four or five eyes looking at the same joke, and Conan and Andy, you know, and our head they're all so funny. That a lot of times they'll tweak a joke and be like, "Oh, you know what? That joke was a five, and you just made it an eight, mm. you know, just from that little thing." Or so that often happens too. They'll Conan tends to rewrite things, and not always, but it's almost always better. Yeah, <laughs> like he, he, you know, he, it's he's really a good editor, and um, 
and he's made a lot of uh, mediocre jokes into really great jokes. That's awesome. Um, well, thank you for sharing that insight. Uh, before we go, I want to talk a little bit uh, about a foundation uh, or, uh, that you are into. Uh, it is called uh, the Julie Fund. I was wondering if you could tell us a, a little bit about the Julie Fund, what it is, how you got into sure. it. Sure. So uh, I, a friend of my, a childhood friend of mine, um, we were we were like in, we would play baseball together when we were kids. Like we went to, we didn't go to the same schools, but he went to the Catholic school and everyone always assumes I went to Catholic school. Amazingly, I didn't. <laughs> um, but we, um, we used to play baseball together and we were in plays together. Then we ended up going to college together. And um, his wife died of uterine cancer. And this is a woman that would jog six miles every morning and hmm. three little kids and it was heartbreaking. Uh, and this was uh, about 15 years ago. Um, and he has started this foundation in her name and they, uh, they work to, uh, to, to fight uh, uterine cancer and, and women's cancer in general. So, um, you know, when I can, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a good cause. I, I thought that's what I'd bring up. Absolutely. And I just taking a look at their, uh, their screen there, their mission is, uh, of the Julie fund for women's cancer is to fight women's cancer in three spaces, uh, education and advocacy, uh, research and patient support. And it was founded in 2004 has grown to become the single largest contributor to ovarian cancer research at mass general hospital. And in the past 15 years, the Julie fund has raised, uh, donated over $4 million, uh, in the fight against women's cancer. And I, I that's wow. just amazing. So, well, uh, my friend is an amazing guy and she she was such a wonderful woman, you know. Oh, that's you know that's that's great that uh, they can you know live on in, in her name and try to help so many people. And if people want more information, they can go to uh, juliefund.org, which is J U L I E F U N D dot org. Um, so you can check that out. And Brian, if they want to follow you on social media, you can uh, follow him on. Uh, let's see, you are on Twitter at Kylie, K-I-L-E-Y, noodles, uh, all <laughs> one word. And then on Instagram, Brian Kylie comic. And uh, uh, so yeah. Conan, uh, Conan makes fun of my skinny, skinny legs and calls me noodles. So that's oh, what okay. I think. <laughs> oh, okay. That's very cool. Well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day and uh, talking to us and um, just giving us some insight and a little bit Anytime. of information. Loved having you. And I want to thank uh, our viewers and listeners for, for tuning in and, uh, Hope you have a great day. I hope you stay safe and I uh, hope to work with you again real soon.